0: Well, this morning we are, we are getting at a tension in the Christian life that if you are a believer in Jesus, you probably feel every day. And, and here's what that tension is. On one hand, all the things we just sang about are true. Jesus Christ has conquered sin for us. And so believers in Jesus Christ have no reason to be concerned about any condemning power sin might have over us. And it's even broken the stronghold that it has to make us obey the powers of our flesh. We don't even have to do what it tells us to anymore. Uh, Not only that, but he has defeated Satan when he rose from the dead. He just slayed his enemy. And one of our most present enemies, death itself, is defeated because he rose from the dead. That's good news. We sing about that all the time. So we got that on one hand, and it's all true. And here's the tension. On the other hand, rarely does it feel that way in our day-to-day life. About, I don't know, maybe a quarter or a third of us Uh, Went to a funeral together this very week for somebody we love and we lost. And it was really sudden. And I don't know about you, but I didn't didn't walk away from that feeling like a winner and like a victor over death. I thought, Lord, if you've defeated death, why is it coming for all the people I love and why is it going to come for me? Uh, And it can be the same for those recurring sins in our lives that plague us. Right, and many, many of us have been following Jesus 20, 30 years, and we're thinking to ourselves, why am I still bitter all the time? Right? Or why do I still lose my temper? Or why, why does that old sin that I used to be into before I was a believer, why does it keep coming back? And why do I keep playing with it when it does come? If I'm a victor over sin, why is this still happening? And if we're really honest, it, a lot of times we look around the world and it doesn't really seem like Satan has been defeated either. Uh, when we count up the number of professing believers in Jesus Christ who were present at the Capitol Hill riot on January 6th, seems like the enemy's working quite a bit of deception. Or how many professing believers in Jesus have bought in Head, head and toes, full, full, hook, line, and sinker, that's the word I'm about. hook, line, and sinker into the, the pride movement. And we think, it, it doesn't seem like Satan and his deceptive works are defeated. It kind of seems like he's winning the hour and, and winning the day. So it's true that Jesus defeated all three. He defeated sin, he defeated Satan, he defeated death. But in our day-to-day lives, It rarely feels like it. And that's the tension that I want to bring up this morning and get at because I think the word is going to speak to it. The reason I bring it up is that the character we're reading about is in kind of an analogous way in a very similar situation. If you're just joining us, we are walking through the book of Genesis together and we are in the life of Jacob right now. And Jacob has gotten himself in a situation where he is no longer the slave of this man named Laban and yet he is still living in Laban's land, and even still working for him, and doing what this slithery master is asking him to do. And so there he is, living in that land, and just almost wondering to himself, well, what am I still doing here? Like, my time is up, my seven years and my other seven years are done with. I don't have to obey this guy anymore. I don't have to live among him in all of his slithery ways anymore. And yet, Here I am, an heir to the promises of God, a prince of God, and living as a servant under this slithery guy. The more we dive into it, the more that's going to feel a lot like the situation that we are in right now. Let's read what the Lord does for him and the hope that it gives to us. This is rather a long story. It is almost two whole chapters in Genesis and the chapters are long in Genesis. So we will stop at a few points on the way and I'll catch you up and give you a little explanation of what's going on. Let's start at Genesis 30 at verse 25. We'll read all the way through that chapter, all the way through 31, and then the first two verses of chapter 32. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I'll give it. And Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything if you will do this for me. I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all of your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come and you look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. And Laban said, good, let it be as you've said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, and he put them in the charge of his sons. I skipped a bit there. Everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's fox. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks of the troughs, that is in the watering places where the flocks come to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flock toward the stripe and all the black of the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the trough before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. and Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, and female servants, and male servants, and camels, and donkeys. Okay, so up to this point, they have entered into a negotiation, and they have tried all sorts of things to outsmart each other, coming to this arrangement that all of the flawed sheep and goats, that is the black sheep, and then the goats that have spots or stripes will be Jacob's, and all the good ones, that's about 80% of the flock, will be Laban's. Then they start changing the rules on each other, and Jacob tries a mixture of primitive genetics and some old superstition to try to get ahead, and no matter what they do, he seems to get ahead, even though he's doing the same thing his wife Rachel did in the last chapter, that is, appeal to superstition to try to get what he wants. It did not work for Rachel, but it's working for Jacob, and so we wonder, why is that working for Jacob? We read on and find out. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that is our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent And he called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. And yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped and spotted and mottled. for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out of this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father and belongs to us and our children. Now then, whatever God, God has said to you, do. So now we have an answer to that question. Why did Jacob prosper so much when he was even appealing to deception and even superstition to do it because the Lord intended to bless him? The Lord saw that Laban was oppressing him and says, I intend to bless you. So it's not the superstition that matters. It's not our striving that matters. It's the Lord blessing Jacob that matters. Now we have our answer. Let's go back to the story in verse 17. So Jacob arose and he set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, all the livestock and his possessions that he had acquired at Paddan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates, and he set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told that Laban to Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tit in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched his tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to them, "What have you done? That you have tricked me and given my daughter, driven my daughters like captives to the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so they might have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying." Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? And Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and in the tents of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And then he went out of Leah's tent and he entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household gods. Two important things there. One, God has delivered Rachel, and God has delivered Jacob in this way. If he had found the gods, it would have been all over. Also, to ancient Israel... Uh, And with their ceremonial law of uncleanliness, this would say to them that those idols are unclean now after Rachel has sat on them in this state. So there'd be an association there. Oh, idolatry isn't just bad, it's gross, it's unclean. So that's kind of a message that is snuck in there in that little part of the story there. Let's continue on and we'll finish the story. Then Jacob became angry. And berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods, and what have you found of all of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and sleep fled from me. My eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house, I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters the children are my children the flocks are my flocks and all that you see is mine but what can i do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born come now let us make a covenant you and i and let it be witnessed between you and me so jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar and jacob said to his kinsmen gather stones And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar-Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galaid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galaid. And Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap in the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap in this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and they spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning Laban rose and he kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And then Laban departed and returned home. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. The words of the Lord. There's much going on in that story, but there is one overarching theme over all of it. The Lord uses that story To comfort his people, reminding us that he knows how to rescue the godly, and he will rescue us from our great enemies of sin, of Satan, and death. The short version of the story is that Jacob, though he is no longer a slave of this man Laban, is stuck in his land, stuck in his house, and just can't seem to leave. This slithery master just won't let him out of his clutches, even though he has, in a sense, already been freed. And then, in the space of one night, Jacob and all of his family flee the land, never to be bothered by Laban again. Now that story, you may be hearing some similarities already, is sort of a miniature version of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. You might even call it the mini-exodus. Here it is, 17 people leaving a land to go back to the promised land, when soon it will be 2 million Israelites leaving Egypt to go back to the promised land. If you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, we often talk about the exodus as the moment when the nation of Israel, at that point 2 million strong, groaning under the whip of slavery in Egypt... They are rescued by God in one dramatic night. All two million of them leave at one time. They go out into the desert. The Egyptian army then pursues them into the desert and corners them on the edge of the Red Sea. But the Lord delivers them dramatically. He parts the Red Sea open. The people of Israel go across the sea as if dry land. They get to the other side and Pharaoh's army, the Egyptian army, pursues them through the sea. And so the Lord crashes down the water upon the Egyptian army, and the people watch, and they wonder, and they realize that their enemies are gone, never to bother them again. We call that story the Exodus, the mass leaving. And today's story is a miniature version of that story. So the way the argument works here this morning is that's the first part. Today's story is a miniature version of the Exodus story. It's a mini Exodus The other half of the argument is that the Bible then uses the Exodus as a miniature version of the day of the Lord when Jesus comes and rescues his people from our greatest enemy, from sin, from Satan, and from death. And so what we're going to find, it's going to take a little bit to get there, but we're going to find several ways that this story tells us a little bit of what it feels like to still be under the thumb of someone that we will one day be rescued from, and I hope it gives great encouragement to you. Let me first show you the many parallels of this story and Egypt's exodus. You can see through that, I think, just that the Spirit intends us to think of that story as we are reading this story. So again, Jacob's exodus from Laban is very parallel and has a lot in common with Israel's exodus from Egypt. They share this much in common in the beginning. Both happen because they're promised beforehand. When Jacob is out in the desert, before he gets to Laban's land, the Lord appears to him and he says, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bring you out of that land back into this land. So when the Lord then brings him out, he is fulfilling a promise he made to Jacob. The same is true for Israel's exodus from Egypt. It had been promised long before it happened. The Lord said even to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will become enslaved by the Egyptian, but I will rescue them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and I will bring them back into this land. So both of them are promised long before they happen. They also begin with the people of the land being greatly blessed by Jacob or by the Israelites. Jacob gets to Laban's land, and Laban recognizes immediately, I am very blessed because of this. He says in this story, the Lord has shown me that I am so blessed because of your presence, Jacob. Stay here with me. So he knows how blessed he is because of Jacob's presence. That is actually how the Exodus story begins as well, as Joseph is taken off to Egypt, and he's a slave in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar is very blessed because of him. And then Joseph goes to prison, and the prison gets blessed because Joseph is there. And then Joseph is elevated over everyone in Egypt except the Pharaoh, and the whole nation is blessed because of them. So in both of them, their relationship with the people of the land starts off with those people are very blessed because God's people are there. But then, in both cases, they turn their hearts and quickly begin treating God's people harshly. Laban very quickly starts cheating Jacob. He changes his wages 10 times. You heard all of Jacob's complaints about him. So it becomes a bitter and harsh relationship. Same thing happens with Egypt. They begin to treat the Israelites harshly. They enslave them and they are bitter masters to them. Uh, It says at one point they treated them harshly. At another point that they hated and despised the Israelites. So both of them very quickly began to hate the people of God that were in their land. And... Yet, both Jacob and Jacob's descendants in Israel multiplied rapidly while they were under servitude. Jacob goes to Laban's land as one person, and he leaves with a family of 17 and all sorts of servants as well. He multiplied so much while he was there. Uh, the people of Israel go to Egypt 70 strong. And they leave 600,000 men, which we think is probably about 2 million people. In 400 years, they multiply from 70 to about 2 million people. So though they're under the yoke of slavery, both of them multiply very much while they're in that land. They also, they don't just multiply in people, but they wind up plundering the lands that they leave. Uh, That was one of the points in the story here today. No matter what Jacob and Laban did... The Lord blessed Jacob's flock, right? More and more of the herd is going into Jacob's pen and is exploding. Meanwhile, Laban's is getting smaller and smaller so that by the time he leaves, he's not just leaving Laban, he's plundering Laban and taking all of his goods with him as well. Well, the same thing happened in Egypt. When the Israelites were leaving, the Lord told them, knock on your neighbor's door and ask them if they have any gold. That's a strange thing to do, isn't it? Uh, But they knock on the door and they ask, do you have any gold? And the Egyptians are like, yes, we do. Take it all, right? Get out of here. They are leaving in mass, two million strong, and the Egyptians are throwing gold necklaces upon their necks like their Mardi Gras beads on the way out, right? We are so afraid of you. Take all of our stuff when you go. So they didn't just leave Egypt. They plundered Egypt on the way out. Both of these exoduses began when God spoke, right? We saw God there with the angel of the Lord appear to Jacob and say, Arise, I have heard what the Lord is doing to you. Leave and go back so that you can worship me in the land. And the Lord does the same for Moses in the exodus. He appears and he says, I have seen what Pharaoh has done to you. Arise, leave this land and go to worship. They both start when the Lord speaks to them. And they both are brought back in the land so that they can worship when they are there. Then some time goes by in both stories, but when the exodus happens, boom, it happens, right? All of them get up and they leave in a night. Jacob and his family all up, boom, and they're gone. Laban doesn't even know they're going. Same thing with Egypt's exodus. The Israelites, boom, they're up and they're gone. They're at no no time even to bake the bread. We got to do the unleavened bread thing. We are out of here. Can you imagine two million people leaving Indianapolis in a night. That's what it was like. Boom, they're out of there. And finally, after they left, their former captors pursued them, caught up to them, but they were miraculously delivered. So Laban pursues Jacob through the hill country, catches up to him. There's this frightening moment, especially for Rachel, but the Lord appears to Laban and delivers them miraculously. In the same way, Pharaoh pursues Israel, catches up to them at the border of the Red Sea, and God does that great miracle, parting the sea, bringing them through and crashing their army. So they pursue them, they catch up to them, but then they are prevented from going any further. Now Israel is over there on the Red Sea, and they never have to worry about their enemies again. And here is Jacob with a stone pillar erected and his enemy saying, I will never cross this pillar to do you harm. You don't have to worry about me ever again. Besides that, there are all kinds of little things. The angel of the Lord shows up in both. There's a strange use of the word watch in both stories. All kind of little parallels we don't have time to go into. But the point is, an Israelite reader would be going through this and saying, oh, this is just like the Exodus. It's like a pre-Exodus, like a many exodus. And that would have profound meaning for them. Because the exodus to them was the day, right? That was the day when the Lord saved us. Uh, Much like you and I look at the day of the crucifixion or the day of the resurrection and we're like, that's when God saved us, right? That's when it happened. We named our church Calvary over that day, right? Because that's when it happened. They looked back on the Exodus as, as their day, the day. But then they would read this story and they would say, oh, God didn't just rescue us once. God rescues us multiple times. So they would get the point that the exodus was not a one-time event. It was not, I saved you guys once, and now you're on your own. Hope you all do all right. But no, over and over, God's people get into trouble, and the Lord rescues them. So then they think back a little farther, and they think, well, wait a minute. Actually, God saved Lot from Sodom also. Rescued them. Brought That was a smaller version of it. And then before that, the Lord saved Noah. So now they're adding all this up together and they're saying, okay, the Lord didn't just save us once. He saves his people. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly. Now that would mean something important to them because eventually they would get themselves kicked out of their promised land, right? Some of them taken up to Assyria in exile, others taken off to Babylon in exile. Here they are out of their promised land again, And they can look back and say, well, if the Lord rescued Noah and Lot and Jacob and the people of Israel in Egypt, that means he's going to do it again. If the Exodus isn't just something he did, but something he does, the Lord's going to rescue us again. Now, that would be important because the prophets would rise up and they would proclaim that very thing, Israel, your exile is coming to an end. And they would even use the language of the Exodus to say that to them. Isaiah would rise up and he would say, I, the Lord would say, I would gather you from all the four corners of the earth and you will plunder the peoples of the east. Just like they plundered the Egyptians, just like they plundered Laban. He so you're going to do it again. And he says in another place, a great trumpet will be blown. He says, and I will call you to come back to the land and worship me on the mountain of Jerusalem, just like he had called them out of Egypt to worship him on the mountain. So now they've got this story telling them that when the Lord promises he will rescue us again, he means it, right? He didn't just do it once. It wasn't a one and done thing, but this is what he does. Now, I know that's a good history lesson, but what's that mean for us, right? It's fascinating to see all those parallels. That's got to mean something for us if we're going to get out of here, though. Yeah, so what it means for us is this. The Lord has been promising us deliverance from our greatest enemies, from sin, from Satan, and from death since Genesis chapter 3. He says to that serpent who is Satan, the descendant of this woman is going to crush you and everything you have brought into this world, Right? So we know that serpent, we know Satan, he's going down. We know the sin he brought in the world, it's going down. We know the death that he brought into the world, it's going down. There is a coming day when the Lord is going to defeat all of that finally and fully for us. And the reason we can make connections between that and this story is because when the prophets talk about that day, they use the same imagery of deliverance and exodus. They call it back to the exodus. So that's the second part of the argument. The coming day when God rescues us, the Bible connects back with the Exodus. Let me show you one spot where he does that. Let's turn to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, we'll read verse 15 and then a few verses after that. Here the prophet is talking about the coming day when our God will restore everything. Jesus will reign forever, the coming day of the Lord. And it's just fascinating what he says in verse 15. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. So what's he comparing it to? He's comparing it to the days when they left Egypt, right? Now, remember, who was it that got thrown in the sea in that story? It was the Egyptian army, right? Their enemies that got thrown in the sea. We scan down to verse 19. Who's the enemy that's going to be defeated this time? He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities under the foot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. See, on this coming day, it's not the Egyptian army that's going to get cast into the sea. It is our sins cast to the depths of the sea, never to harass and bother us again. And why is he going to do it? He says in verse 20, You will show steadfast faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. He'll do it because he promised he would do it in the days of old to Abraham and Jacob. Just like he did the exodus because he promised he would do it. So in the same way that Jacob can stand there on that hill and see Laban's army turn back never to bother him again. And in the same way that Israel can stand there and see their enemies in the bottom of the sea never to bother them again. Christian, there is a day coming when sin Satan and death will never bother you again. You will look in that sea and see them cast down there forever. That's what that means for us. Now, here's how we did this once because what part of the tension we're living in here is the Lord has done this and the Lord will do it. Let me tell you how he's done it, how that is promised to us, how we can know it's true and then I'll unpack a few details in the story to finish up. So, The way that our Lord defeated sin, Satan, and death forever was by coming to earth as a man. And that man's name was Jesus Christ. He's the one that we are here worshiping right now. God made man. And what he did was he lived a life with no sin at all. The only human to ever live and never do any wrong before God. The only human to fear God and keep his commands for all of his life. He pulls it off. He does it because he's God himself. Because he's perfect. Then... The wage of sin is death, and so the way the math should work is if he never sins, he never has to die, so he should still be alive and with us today. But instead, he willingly was brought up a hill, and he was crucified there and and was killed. And the reason he did that was to stand voluntarily in the place of anyone who would trust him and pay for the sins of anyone who would be his. So he says, now for anyone who would come back to him, come to me, see my death, pay for all of your sin, past, present, future. I'll pay for it all through that death. There's how he conquers sin for us. Can you see that sin has no power on us now? Because he's paid for it. He defeated it by paying for it. Then on the third day, his body lay dead in the grave and he got up and walked, walked right out of that tomb in a perfect, glorified, resurrected body. By rising from the dead, he defeated death once for all. And so he says also, Come to me, anyone who would trust me, I will give you eternal life. Resurrection from the dead on the last day and life forevermore in my name. This is how he's defeated sin. And this is how he has defeated death, and that's how he defeated Satan, the one who brought both of those into the world. And so we can look to him and say, praise God, we have a victor over sin and death. My call to anyone in this room is to put your faith in that Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for the resurrection of your body at his return, and for eternal life among many other things that he promises you. That promise is yours in his hand reached out to you, and you can take it whenever you would have it just By trusting in him. That's how he defeated sin, Satan, and death for us. But now we live in this kind of in between area, don't we? They're defeated enemies, but they're still haunting us. And that is a lot like Jacob still stuck in Laban's land, still living among Laban, having to put up with all of his ways, even participating in some of his deceptive ways himself when he knows he's supposed to be somewhere else. That's a little bit of what it feels like to be here. We're not supposed to be going to funerals. We're supposed to be living in the new Jerusalem with Jesus, celebrating forever. And instead, we're going through the hardships of life and watching our friends die, and we know it's coming for us as well. We're just a little bit like him. Some ways that our life is like that are that we're not a slave to sin anymore. Romans says that we're no longer slaves to sin. We don't have to obey its passions anymore. Just like Jacob's seven years were up and then his second seven years were up, he could have left if he wanted to, but there he finds himself still doing what his old master tells him to do. And here we are in the very same situation thinking to ourselves, why am I still losing my temper, right? I don't have to do that anymore. Why am I still bitter? I don't have to be like that anymore, but I still am. Why why am I still playing with that old sin that comes, that old addiction that comes back up? Why am I still messing around with that when I don't have to? It's not my master anymore. And some of you just need to hear that unlike the situation Jacob was in, the Lord has given you as a Christian all the power you need to say no to every temptation that you have. Now, you will still sin against God, but that's not because he didn't give you all the resources you need to do it. First Peter says we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You have all you need to live a holy life. Whatever that sin is that keeps haunting you, you have everything you need to have victory over it today and never do it again. And some of us just need to not despair and know that we could go the whole day tomorrow and the whole day after that and the whole day after that never committing that sin again. That's one way we're a little bit different from Jacob's scenario, but we're definitely still in his land, still at sometimes obeying what he wants to do. We're definitely still haunted by death, aren't we? And we can't do much about that. Uh, It's almost like it's just there lingering over us like Laban just won't let Jacob go. Saying, I'm coming for this friend, I'm coming for that friend, and then I'm coming for your spouse, and then I'm coming for you. And what can we do about it, right? So there's where we are. And what's going to happen is in the space of one night, the Lord is going to say, no more. The Lord's going to say, up, out, all of you. And never again will sin, Satan, or death harass us even once. In the space of a night, Jacob and all of his got up and they left. And there are many coming days that will look like this. The day when Jesus returns The trumpet sounds, the voice of the Lord, the cry of an archangel, and every dead saint we have ever lost will rise up out of their graves. As the Lord says, arise, right? Come up, come to me and meet me in the air. And then we that are left will go and meet with him and come back down here to earth. I believe he'll set up a kingdom then, but many people look at that a little bit differently. The Lord will come, and in the space of a night, all of that will be over. Funny thing is, that morning, I don't know that Jacob thought of that as any different of a morning. It was just a day, and then all of a sudden the Lord spoke. And this is how it will be when very suddenly the Lord comes and he rescues us. So what do we do until then? Right? We're waiting on that rescue, the Lord rescue. What do we do until then? Well, we do the same thing that Jacob did. We multiply and we plunder our old master's house. Jacob, when he was there in Laban's land, couldn't stop him from when He comes in as one person. He leaves as 17 in his family. And in the very same way, we started with a very small number, fewer than 100 disciples of Jesus Christ when he left, probably. And since then, in 2,000 years, we have multiplied to probably well over a billion followers of Jesus Christ multiplying, even when you're still here, living in Laban's land, haunted by death, all these problems are going on, scandal after scandal, pervading the church, and yet we just keep multiplying. We're doing the same thing that Jacob was doing to Laban. We're plundering our old master's house. We aren't just going to leave, but we are going to leave with lots of people that used to belong to him. We're going to bring him into our arms and leave with them like Jacob did. There is someone right now at a pride march shouting out blasphemies against Christians and against Jesus Christ, knowing full well what they're saying. And if the Lord waits 52 weeks to return, that person in 52 weeks will be in a gospel preaching church praising Jesus Christ for His forgiveness. Now, why does that happen? Because as long as we're here, we're plundering our old master's house. We're saying we're taking some of them and we're taking some of them. There is someone right now on a white supremacy message board just hacking out hatred for anyone that doesn't look like them, who in 52 weeks, if the Lord hasn't returned yet, will be in a gospel preaching church praising Jesus Christ for his forgiveness. Because as long as we are here, we are plundering our enemy's house. There is someone working for the CCP in China right now, probably going to bed at night because it's night over there, who spent this day going after an underground church, an underground Christian church, doing all he can to persecute them and stop them, who, if we are still here in a year, will be a member at that house church. Because the Lord will change him. Because as long as we are here, we are plundering our enemy's house. So Christian, be bold with that gospel. If he has not come back yet, it is because he still intends for us to multiply and he still intends for us to plunder Satan's house as long as we are here. The more you sow that seed of the gospel, the more you get that message out, the more of those people that we can bring in as we plunder our enemy's house. Let that embolden your evangelism, Christian. There are other ways in which the Christian life is not like being in Laban's land, but like fleeing Laban. And that's part of the story too, right? Jacob is running away from him at one point and his old master is after him. And this is very much what it feels like to be a Christian, is that you are fleeing your former sins and you can see them coming after you. We're fleeing death and we know it's just coming after us. And sometimes it's just like a chase in the hill country, right? There's your enemy coming over the fourth hill there. And so you see him and so you're running even faster and you're scared. And then he goes in between the few hills and you look back and he's not there. And you're like, hey, he's gone, right? I'm never going to lose my temper again. I don't have an anger problem anymore, right? Sin's gone. Or I'm never going to fall to that old addiction again because it's gone. Look at that. You look back and then... There he comes over the next hill, right? Oh, he's still there. And you're on the run. Doesn't it feel like that, fighting sin over and over? And eventually, you get used to it and you know, okay, I don't see him, but I know he's coming back. And I know one day he's going to catch up to me. And here's the scary thing. Laban actually does catch up to Jacob. One, One day that sin will catch up to you. One day death will catch up to you. And that's why that part of that story is so important. Yes, Laban catches Jacob, but the Lord intervenes miraculously to rescue Jacob from him. Christian, this is just what will happen to you on the day when your sin catches up to you on the day when death catches up to you and you're dead. We're done. It is that cold, it is that harsh, and there's nothing we can do about it, right? And just like Laban looked at Jacob And said, it is in my power to do you great harm, but the Lord won't let me. That's exactly what death is going to say to us. It is in my power to do so much harm to you, but the Lord won't let me. And so then we lie, our bodies in the ground, our souls up in heaven with the Lord, until we hear that trumpet sound and Jesus says, get up all of you, it is time. Right? So, So one day then, though our enemy will catch up to us, one day we will look him in the eye, he will look us in the eye, and just like Laban, he will know he can do nothing, and he will turn around and be gone, never to bother us again. Krishna, that's the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Yeah, he will catch up to us, but we will be delivered. So what this means for us is simply as you go and you fight the battles of the Christian life, Christian, you have hope. When your life feels like your enemy after you, when your life feels like suffering under the yoke as a slave to someone you're not a slave to anymore, and you're like, what is going on? We are fighting enemies that have been defeated already. There will come a day when Satan's deception ends and it is simply no more. There will come a day when we will look on Twitter to see what the white supremacists are saying, and they won't be there anymore because Satan's deception will be done. There will come a day when that sin that keeps coming up and haunting you will stop its haunting. And there will come a day when that coming death that we all fear will be no more. Lord gives us stories like that to give us hope so that we can leave from this room and we can fight with strength. So Christian, fight sin with all you've got. Fight Satan's deceptions with all you've got. And as long as you are here, join me in our mission to plunder our enemy's house and get as many of his people as we can onto our team before the next great exodus happens. Let's pray together. We'll ask the Lord to do that right now.